Cut, and this is the K-Cut. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I've contributed some articles to Films Fatale, and my expertise here on the show is no-budget cinema and 70s cinema. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale. We just went to Greenland in my column, which was really fun. And um, I love classic cinema, lost films, silent movies, and international my name is Andreas. I'm the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love international cinema, art house cinema, a little bit of everything in between. And in case you get to tell by this title, um, we have been very vigilant with films. Or with, uh, we have been very vigilant with the K cut, and we have actually reached without skipping any weeks. Even some of the weeks where we couldn't record, we had some good content for you, for you dear listeners. We're actually here at. Episode 100 already. It's uh, very surreal. Technically, we've recorded more than 100 episodes already when it comes to our Oscar stuff, our demos, some of our interviews, some of our other specials. Um, but when it comes to official K-Cut episodes, we are here at episode 100. And I don't want to waste any time because we have a lot to get through. Basically, what I felt like would be a really fun thing to do is at the end of every episode, we give random weekly recommendations. Instead, why don't we give 30? So, something that I've always really taken a liking to, even though I highly disagree with a lot of their picks, is AFI and a lot of their lists when it comes to classic cinema, their 100 funniest films, or, you know, their their greatest screen stars of all time. Um, all of that's all well and good, but they also have something called the AFI Top 10 Top 10. And I think... It is such an interesting premise where, you know, they have a horror list, they have a comedy list, but here are 10 mini lists, not top 100s, but 10, 10 lists of 10 um, of all the other genres that people don't really ever just give the time of day, or some do, but, you know, in general, here are the ones that they neglected until now. So it's uh, a list that's been around for, I think, 15 years or so. It's been a while. And the categories are in alphabetical order and the order that we will be going in. Animation, courtroom drama, epic, fantasy, gangster, mystery, rom-coms, science fiction, sports, and a good old-fashioned western. Now, if you've been a listener or if this is your first time listening, we all have separate tastes in film like we just prefaced the episode with. But at the same time, we have a lot of crossover as well. And... Basically, what we're going to do instead of making our own top tens, uh, we're going to pick one film that we really attribute to each genre provided. So, uh, for instance, I hate sports films, but I'm still going to pick one. Um, you know, we have our favorites and our least favorites. We're going to see how they all go. How does everyone feel about this? Let's do this. Alrighty, let's not waste any time. Let's, let's just hop right into this. So, the first category is animation. And for reference, I'll go over whatever um, AFI places their top one as well. Not the top tens. We don't have time for that. Um, they said Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which is the very first animated feature of all time. I get so that pick. It's, it's a, it's a, it's That's a, predictable. It's a great film, but at the same time, it doesn't seem genuine. Like, it's possibly the most influential because it started all of them. But is it really the best of all time? I don't know. So, who wants to go first? We could go in the same order from from this round. Who wants to go first with their pick as to what is possibly the best animated film of all time? I can go. Sure. Okay. All right, so we'll go James, Rachel, me. So, I don't know if best of all time. That's a really... 
or fitting that's a, for that's this a pretty question. He- as pretty well. heavy title. Um, yeah. No, I decided to go with uh, the classic '80s anime film Akira. Ooh, that's a good one. For three reasons: one, it's obviously a hallmark in anime. Uh, it's one of the most influential cyberpunk works, but also I don't think there are that many works that have a single sequence that has been repeated so many times as much as the classic motorcycle, motorcycle slide from this movie. Yep. And for those who know what I'm talking about, if you ever see like if your point of view and there's like someone sliding away from the camera sideways on a motorcycle, it comes from that film. And it's been used in countless films, countless music videos, so many things. And uh, yeah, no, it's just, it's definitely among its place, it has its place among the greatest of animations of all time. And that was just my pick. I could not agree more. I think it's an excellent pick. Rachel, what about you? Well, I didn't really focus much on its place in film history. I just picked movies I really liked. But for animation, I went with Persepolis, which is a really wonderful story of one family and really one person's life. And it's especially relevant now, and I just think it's a really great example of adult animation. I don't mean crass, I mean thoughtful, mature, meant to appeal to adults. So I would say anybody should watch it. Persepolis is also a great pick, by the way. Um, for for me, okay, I've got a couple that I could pick from, but I think the one that I'm going to go with, because it's like the most... I feel like it's like the one that's like, when I think of classic animation, what does it look like? Even though it's on the list, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree a little bit with AFI. I'm gonna go with Fantasia. I feel like um, that's when Disney was operating purely as art, excluding all the problematic stuff. I might have to add. Um, it's when they were trying to make artistic films, and before Disney was what we know it is now, or even during the Renaissance. But like when it, when they were still making stuff like Bambi, which was like a, a high second selection for me when it comes to this. Um, it's just so beautifully animated. It's so provocative with what you're seeing. And because it's set to music and it's all interpretive of these compositions, um, it still leaves a lot of vagueness in terms of what we can perceive. Not narratively, because it's pretty set in stone with whatever happens on screen at, at any given point. But just the relation between the visuals and the music, I feel like... Um, you 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 leave your own personal imprint with how you felt during watching, like how you felt watching the film, and that's why I have to go with that. Some other minor picks I was thinking maybe Perfect Blue, which is the best anime I've ever seen, and uh, the Red Turtle, which I think subjectively is like my favorite animated film thing that I've ever seen, but it also felt a little bit too recent. So animation, I feel like we have a. Really good selection here. Uh, something that's going to be a little bit more confining, I think. We're going to go with the courtroom dramas next. Yeah, it's uh, an odd lineup of genres, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because like some of these are ones where it's like we've seen lists based on rom-coms before. But then like some of these are like... It, okay, so it's like fantasy, which is a genre for sure. Sci-fi. And then courtroom drama. It's like, okay, that's technically a drama. Like a standard drama like you know it's not like war drama was selected or like satires i don't know it feels a little loopy but um for reference uh afi picked to kill a mockingbird as first place with everyone's favorite 12 angry men second just had to give it a shout out because it's fantastic uh james what is your favorite courtroom drama if you want to call it that of all time uh so mine isn't 
doesn't really take place in a courtroom, but it does operate like a courtroom drama. Uh, I decided to go with David Fincher's The Social Network. Actually, yeah. I, I would consider that one in, in ways. Well, there is a hearing for like half the movie. That's yeah, true. Yeah, I just think, honestly, it's just one of those movies. It's just perfect. That's really all I can say. Like, it, it's it's one of my favorite films just of all time. There's just everything about it was just absolute. I don't know. It's like there are certain films that you don't expect to be as good as they are. And when they get the praise, it's like, you know, it's one of these things I can say, I I think objectively, it's probably one of the best things I've ever seen. Also, like, you know, just I don't know what it is. It's like because everybody knows Aaron Sorkin's a pretty great screen screenwriter. But for some reason, this just worked in a way that like a lot of his other screenplays haven't. I can tell you why I think it is. It's because, and it's perfect for like what is effectively, and I do agree to an extent it is a courtroom film because they're being grilled with, with lawyers and it's like a trial, basically. Um, what I would say is um, David Fincher is a very cold filmmaker and Aaron Sorkin, as we've learned through his filmmaking, is a lot more schmaltzy than I think we were led to believe. Um, so because he didn't get that side of his screenplay out it's a lot more calculated and yeah it's very Fincher-esque I think it brought out the best qualities of the screenplay Rachel what about you what is your favorite I went with Anatomy of a Murder which was in that very underrated year of 1959 where taboos were shattered all over American film and Anatomy of a Murder really goes into the forensic side of crime in a way that had never really been done before it is Tough to watch even now, I would say, and it's just a really finely done drama that broke new ground. I like that because that's also a, a like a straightforward courtroom drama. But I would also have to argue it is. I I have to agree. Like I I think it full on is is like quintessential courtroom drama if we're gonna ever label films as such. Um, and I could easily see why you picked that as first. How about you? For myself, I was kind of torn between two, which, like James, aren't really courtroom dramas, but I'm going to make the case that they are. So in a very close second, because I feel like it's a little bit looser, um, Paths of Glory, which is a war film, which takes place heavily in a courtroom towards the final act of the film. And the second act is everything leading up to that courtroom sequence, which is just breathtaking. But the one that I ended up going with is um, a bit of a stretch, but I'm going with it. Close Up by Abbas Kiristami, which is actually uh, docu-fiction. So the story with this one is somebody posed as a famous Iranian filmmaker, and this is real, like this actually happened. Somebody pretended to be a famous Iranian filmmaker and uh, basically lied to people so uh, he could have, you know, uses, I think it was like uses of property and everything. Um, And they discovered, oh, this guy lied. He's not this filmmaker at all. We're going to see you in court. Uh, especially because over in Iran, it's like a huge offense. I mean, it's a huge offense already, but like this is like a huge offense. But Kiristami, being the meta filmmaker that he is, decided, hey, I'm going to have everybody in this scenario. So the perpetrator, the people that he violated, um, they're going to act and reenact everything, but as themselves. So all of that is react, reenacted by these people acting as themselves and seeing these scenarios in a new light while they're documenting the actual court trial itself as a, doc, as a documentary. 
I think it's just a genius approach to this sort of story. That is a really good pick, and it's also groundbreaking in its own way. I think more so as, like, a documentary, but, like, if we're considering, like, courtroom... And, and I mean, there is, like, narrative elements to this if it's being acted out. Uh, as courtroom dramas, I think it has to be considered. Um, now, we're going to get into something a little bit more vague and a little bit more typical. We're going to get into the epic category. And oh, you mean the most overused word of the 2000s? <laughs> well, at least I think in um, AFI's case here... They uh they used it quite appropriately, especially because their number one pick. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue against some of their number one picks because some of them are really good. They said Lawrence of Arabia, which for years I said yes, I agree. So let's see if anybody else does with Lawrence of Arabia. James, what is your favorite epic film of all time? Uh, I decided to go with Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. That definitely qualifies. Okay, a very recent pick. Um, I think in terms of being a war epic, I think he, I mean, his style and how he manipulates time really worked for the size of this film because it takes, you know, it's a triptych narrative where, you know, a third of the film, it takes place over an hour, another third takes place over a day and another third takes place over a week and it's all shuffled together and kind of rolls into each other. And just, you know, the Battle of Dunkirk is a very specific part of World War II, but the way he shot this movie made it seem like it was almost like the main event of the whole war. That's a good way of going about it. So, yeah. Also, also I saw it in IMAX, and it was amazing. On 70? Not 70. Oh, 70 was, it was amazing. We don't really, we don't really get stuff like that here all too often. You're going to have to come up here at some point. Come to Toronto. Road trip, road trip. (laughs) <laughs> come to Toronto. We'll we'll do the reverse trip at some point. Maybe when the Pistons are a little bit better, I'll go to Detroit and see and see Michigan while I'm at it. But uh, yeah, come up here, uh, Rachel. What is your epic epic of all time? Do 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 do. Doctor Shivago. There we go. It could only mean Dr. Zivago. Yeah, you've got this massive sprawling country with endless possibilities. You've got some of the most earth-shattering events in modern history, and you've got this enormous passion right at the center of it. And if that's not epic, what is? Is that your favorite lean film of all time? No, I'm still, I still have a soft spot for summertime, that's but that's true. not epic. In its own right it is, but like compared to his other films, no, not really. So I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me, you know, I typically have, you know, split ideas and stuff. And there are epics that I do prefer to this film, but this has to be quite possibly the most epic experience I've ever had watching a film. And it is also an epic. So it only felt like the only answer that I could go with. And that is the many-hour, multi-part epic case in point, uh, War and Peace by Sergei Bondarchuk, which was actually funded by, if I'm not mistaken, the Soviet military, and it boasts one of the craziest productions that you will ever see in anything ever, Um, despite the occasional animal abuse with horses getting hurt, which I never condone. um, This is one of those phenomenally directed things I've ever seen, and when it comes to war films, it feels a little unparalleled. If you have, how long is this? This is like 430 minutes, which is 
do the math. I think it's like seven hours or something to that effect. If you have the time, I cannot recommend it enough. It's hard to watch because of its length, but every cinephile should do the pilgrimage and watch this version of War and Peace. Then if you've got 10 years, read the book. <laughs> Which I still need to do. Um, maybe one day. Maybe one day. Uh, next up, we have the fantasy category. Also quite open to interpretation, so I'll give you some examples that AFI has. The Thief of, the thief of Baghdad, the silent one, right next to Groundhog Day, Field of Dreams, and their number one pick is The Wizard of Oz. Also that is Lord a of the motley Rings assortment. It is, and it's that's why it's so open to interpretation. So I'm wondering if we're going to be quite as varied as well. But yeah, Wizard of Oz is the number one pick. James, do you agree, or do you have a different pick for your fantasy film? Uh, no, I actually decided to kind of sidestep it and uh, interpret it in my own way. I decided to go with Midnight in Paris. Yes. That absolutely counts, in my opinion. That absolutely counts. Well, it's literally the guy's fantasy. Yeah, yeah. it's not like a traditional, what most people consider a fantasy film, but... I think it's a it's a good film because I think it's I think the meaning of the film is very relevant, especially in this time in a time of where everybody's kind of entrenching themselves in nostalgia, especially like, you know, people who kind of like pine to be in a different time when in all actuality, you should really just be thankful for the time that you're in because there's a lot more to it than you realize. I think it's a great pick. Mm-hmm. As someone who basically lives in like 30s and 40s Hollywood, I really identified with this film. And you also love transporting yourself around the world. So you've got that location site as well. What about you? Did you also pick Midnight in Paris? Or I'm guessing you love something else. No, I went with a much shorter, simpler movie that somehow captured the magic of cinema in a way I would argue no film ever has since. And that is 1902's Un Voyage dans la Lune, A Trip to the Moon by Georges Méliès. And yeah, this is, it's kind of sci-fi, but it's also a bit of a fantasy because, again, it's not really random reality and Melia knew it. It's kind of Jules Verne vibes. And yeah, this is where really, I think, fantasy started in film. And it's the first adventure. I think it's public domain, so you can pretty much find it anywhere and go see it. If not that film, something by Melia was like the start of fantasy in film. And it's so interesting that I know you've already just brought it up that you brought this up as a, as a fantasy film and not your sci-fi pick, because even though it takes place in space, it's still very fantasy-like with like the creatures that they find and everything. It's not really sci-fi like we know it. So I think it's a great pick as well. Yeah, very Jules Verne. Very Jules Verne indeed. So for mine, I'm going to go... Um, I love Czechoslovakian cinema. I'm going to go, and I've got a few picks for this in my mind, but there's also one definitive answer where nothing quite felt like the youthfulness of fantasy quite like this ever did. Um, But it also has a severe maturity about it as well. And that's Valerie and Her Week of Wonders back in 1970, uh, directed by, and Rachel, uh, forgive me if I butcher this, uh, Jeremil Jerez. I think I can't speak Czech. Anyway, um, this is a brilliant film, and we've seen a lot of filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro, especially, who have tried to show the mature side of the fantasy genre, as if we are adults reflecting on our youths, but with a different lens. And as great as so many things have been by del Toro, and one of his favorite films, which is Spirit of the Beehive, which is also worth checking out, 
This captured it the best. This is horrific, but also whimsical. It's just so colorful, but also drab and frigid. It's everything that the gray area between youth and adulthood should be. And if you haven't seen it, it's just brilliant. It's another, another high recommendation. Up next, we have... <laughs> we might have some crossover here. Uh, we've got the gangster section. So um, we got quite a few interesting things here. Both Scarfaces by Howard Hawks and De Palma. I was going to ask how many Scarfaces made it. <laughs> there are two. And thank goodness the Howard Hawks one is higher. Because that, listeners, that is the better one. You know, if you disagree, you're wrong. Um, otherwise, uh, a very obvious pick that AFI made here with... Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, the first one, as their number one pick. So, um, James, I have a feeling you agree, but do you agree? So, this one was really difficult for me because I didn't know how I wanted to interpret it. Interpret it. Like, part of me wanted to pick, like, Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And then uh, another part of me wanted to pick The Departed. But, you know what? I decided to just go completely sideways and just ditch organized crime and decide to, you know, kind of roll with something that has to do with the inner city. And I decided to go with the hood classic boys in the hood. Hey, okay. That's unexpected, but a great pick. Why did you pick that one? Um, I think because when we, when we, I think when we talk about these kinds of flicks, I think we kind of forget, you know, gang life is kind of derivative of organized crime. So do I really want to, you know, I, I think it's like, we can't always just look at these pristine productions of these, like, you know, you know, crime bosses and, you know, corrupt cops, but, you know, take something that's, you know, is a bit more sincere. And I think what um, John Singleton did with this movie is just pure magic, especially he made it when he was 23, which is just mind blowing that someone in his early twenties could make a masterpiece like this. Youngest Best Director nomination, if I'm not mistaken, and the first um, black person to be nominated as well, which is a, a, a crime in and of itself. But uh, clearly, it was destined for great things. It's a it's a brilliant debut. Uh, Rachel, what about you? What did you select? And is it from pre-code era? No, just barely not. It was the Petrified Forest, which was adapted from a Broadway play. And it's, it's a very nice sort of locked room gangster movie, but Humphrey Bogart, he'd made some movies before, but he really got his big break with this film, and he was terrifying. It's one of his best performances. He came from Broadway to do this role because they refused to make the movie without him, basically. And so this icon of the gangster era really got his start with this film, and he's bone-chilling. It's great. Well... This might surprise you and also help you a little bit. I've never seen that. So okay, thank you for I'm the recommendation. <laughs> for listeners at home, uh, we uh, do a monthly segment called Cinematic Smorgasbord where we recommend films for one another. You should check it out. And uh, we're going to get into our uh, films of that nature at the end of the episode. But basically, everybody struggles to pick movies for me that I've never seen because I've seen too many damn things. So that's the list that Rachel's talking about. Things that I haven't seen. Could you like forget a hundred maybe? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, give me maybe a couple of years and that might be the case. Things to rewatch, absolutely. I, I've, when you've watched too many things, you forget them a lot more quickly. So that is highly capable. Um, I hate to be so pre 
predictable for this one because there are so many gangster films that I love. So many ones that I love. But at the end of the day, I do think that The Godfather Part 2 is the best gangster film ever made, especially in a classical sense. Um, I didn't really think about you know, coloring outside of the lines for this one. So like films noir or pre-code or, which is, you know, still gangster. So that's on me, but, um, not in the way that you did as well, James. So, uh, I'm going to accept the pick that I made Godfather two. Why am I sticking with it? Because, uh, first off, I think it's better than one. And, uh, if you disagree with that, you're also wrong. No, it's fine. You can prefer as long as it's saw three. It's also like two films in one. It's a prequel and a sequel. That's why I love it. I feel like as a sequel and a prequel, it just succeeds. But even if you've never seen the first one, it's just like if I made a list of the of the epics as well, this would be on that as well. It's just so huge in scope, so ambitious, so touching. The only thing I could feel like that comes close in this sense, and on some days I do prefer it, is Once Upon a Time in America, but... Stick around and you'll see why I didn't pick that one. Uh, so for now, I'm sticking with with that one, The Godfather Part 2. I just think it's exquisite. Um, we're going to have a little bit of crossover and theme here because we're going in um, alphabetical order. So we've got the mystery genre next, uh, which I know has a lot of similar elements depending on if you're, again, looking at films noir or neo-noir. There's a lot of gangster and mystery elements to them both. Um VFI's got a really good selection with Vertigo at number one. Um, will we agree with it? James, are you going to agree with that or are you going to go with something else? So I'm going to go with something else. And uh, I'm going with Christopher Nolan's Memento. Brilliant. It's a classic. Because it's it's one of the rare films that actually, in the history of mystery in neo-noir, it was one of the rare films that did something completely brand new. And just the fact that he was able to use... like technique to help enhance the narrative i mean i would have never thought that just a a way of editing would cause you know you to be transported into the mind of a character who you know suffers from anterograde amnesia like i don't think anybody else could have ever thought to do that and it goes about it so well and so interestingly to the point that a lot of people forget it's um it's low budget a lot of people forget that it's like only a second film. It's considered one of his opuses. In fact, a lot of people consider it his magnum opus. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's highly deserving of, of being selected. Rachel, what about you? Well, I struggled with this one because I didn't want to go with one of the film noirs that is at the top of every single list, like the Maltese Falcon or something. So I went with Knives Out. It's a little recent to be on a list like this, but I think it is going to stand the test of time. And it just, it plays with all these tropes and it has so much fun with them. And yet there's still a compelling mystery at the heart of it. And it's got an incredible all-star cast. It is also part of that very niche genre where Christopher Plummer lives with his messed up family in a remote uh, home. And then he uh, is involved in a murder and Daniel Craig has to go solve it with the help of a young woman. The other one being Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And I'm surprised there's not more. <laughs> well, no, there yeah. will be no more because there's no Christopher Plummer. Unfortunately, but I wonder if there's like stuff that they shot that's like just waiting to be unearthed one day. Who knows? I think the sequel's um, coming out soon, isn't it? Glass Onion, yeah. Yes, looking forward to that. Yeah, well, I hope you enjoy it then when it comes out. It's coming out very soon, I think. Um, and to Netflix, I think, very soon as well. So if you miss it in theaters, it'll be reachable. Um, 
going to be a little bit predictable here, but like, I love a lot of mystery films, but there's one film that I've considered in my top five ever since I have, I've seen it. I consider it the greatest screenplay of all time, which is very important for, for mystery films. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's Chinatown. I mean, I just adore this film so much, especially as when it comes to how it's written, I feel like it's the best written thing I've ever experienced. And again, that's very important for a mystery where every little clue is important and every little moment adds to the bigger picture. And I, I'm sorry. There are so many other things that I could go through, but it's not even worth it. I'm just going to go with Chinatown. It's the best mystery I've ever seen. It, it is a good one. It's one of those, one of those screenplays where it's like, it's just untouchable. Yeah, I, I, and I do know that the original ending is not how it ended, and that was um, what Polanski did <laughs> to change the ending, which I technically know nullifies the whole greatest screenplay of all time sentiment, but whatever, it, it still is. It's the best written film in its entirety, let's say. Whatever, however you want to label it, it just is. Um, and speaking of good writing, I feel like you need good writing to be a really good romantic comedy. And that's where we're going next. This is an interesting category because a lot of people would love to go for the classic stuff, like When Harry Met Sally, or you could get really creative with what this even means. So AFI picked City Lights, and that's really tough to beat. City Lights is the number one of all time. Um, James, what is your best rom-com? Oh, uh, so it's funny you said about, you know, interpreting it. Because mine is absolutely silly, and you'll understand why. So mine, it's not like a funny ha-ha comedy. It's kind of like a dark comedy. And the romance, while there, isn't really genuine given the situation. But I decided to go with the absurdist dystopian nightmare from the brilliant mind of Yorgos Lanthimos, The Lobster. (laughs) I mean, that counts. It's romantic in a comedy. Yeah, Yeah. I just think it's... (laughs) That when I saw that film, I was just like, there is no way someone's brain came up with this. Like it just from the characters to the scenario to the ending, it's just like, oh, it just it keeps you interested the entire time. I don't know what it is about his brain, but it's like I I would love to research his brain because this and like stuff like killing the killing of a sacred deer, I'm just like, how do you how do you come up with something so intense that just, you know, you have to keep watching to the end and you want to know what happens after. But yeah, that's, I guess that's my romantic comedy pick. Get to know more Greek people were exceptionally twisted. <laughs> Rachel, uh, I love his stuff. Uh, Rachel, uh, what about you? Well, I went with a more conventional one and that is the Philadelphia story from 1940. You had all these rom-com veterans like George Cukor directing. You had Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart, all at the top of their game, all at the height of their sophistication. It was kind of the end of the screwball genre, but they really gave it a good send-off. And they're just all stunning in their roles. And the screenplay is so witty. Just really fine, elegant work. That is a very Rachel pick, and I'm happy that you made it. And it was actually crowned the other day, I think, the best rom-com of all time, definitively so, I think by IndieWire. So, hell of a pick. You have a lot of people that agree with you. Um, mine is City Lights, but I feel like 
I don't want to pick the one that AFI has here because I feel like we could be talking about something else. Um, it's City Lights. If you haven't watched it, you must. That's all I'm going to say about that. So my uh, personal favorite uh, is also a bit of a strange one and a bit of a twisting of what this could be is uh, Chunking Express by Wong Kar Wai, where I feel like it's silly and comedic in ways, obviously very serious, but... Um, it deals with the fleeting romance and the, you know, the blissfulness of falling in love so weirdly and so interestingly that I feel like it can absolutely qualify in a very abstract, non-serious sense as a romantic comedy, especially when you have like, and I don't want to spoil, but like, um, a lot of the more awkward moments of the film. Yeah, I don't know. To me, that embodies everything that a rom-com should be, and it really plays to my liking. So that's the one I'm going to go with. Um, a little bit a little bit less lovely and uh, whimsical, though, is the frigid science fiction category. And, you know, sci-fi is also very subjective. Do you... Sci-fi is also very interpretational. Like, do you go with something that's literally about space and aliens? Or are you going to go with something dystopian or post-apocalyptic or on Earth but slightly different? Um, we have so many picks here uh, that we can go with. AFI says 2001 A Space Odyssey, which, again, that's a really hard film to beat. Uh, James, yeah, I don't what do you think? Yeah, I don't with that one at all. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, let's see if we all pick the same one. Um James, what are you picking? So, I was trying to think of what I wanted to do, and I just, I couldn't, I could not pick this, but I gotta go with, you know, one of my all-time favorites, Upstream Color. Ah, yes. It's fantastic. It's, it's, it's one of those instances where it's like, not even just the movie itself, and and it's unfortunate that uh, we, you know, Shane Carruth has all but disappeared after he was arrested recently on on domestic violence charges, unfortunately, but it's not often you have somebody who completely blindsides the entire sci-fi genre twice because he completely rewrote the rules with primer and then did it once again with upstream color and except upstream color for some reason I've noticed like despite being a small, a small film, I feel like it had some sort of influence in the industry because there's a lot of aesthetic choices people are making nowadays that seem to stem from this. And I don't know if it's just the way he kind of because because there's a clear Malik influence in the movie, and I don't know if people are like taking it from the Malik influence or from that. But I've seen just like I don't know, it's some some instances people's use of color and cinematography just remind me of that flick, and I'm just like, man, maybe this had more of an impact than I thought it did when it come out came out. Well, I do know a lot of people are for sure influenced by Terrence Malick, but more than ever, even when the internet was not quite what it is now. Um, People were celebrating Primer and like you couldn't even like Wikipedia didn't even exist and somehow people were still like discovering Primer. Um, so it could be that as well. Like Karuth has been celebrated online and a it's lot of filmmakers. A film. Yeah, a lot of filmmakers like are, are aware of this guy, even if the audience or the general public isn't. Uh, Rachel, what about you? Mine was so obvious, I barely even have to say it. I went with the granddaddy of them all, Metropolis, because uh. every sci-fi film that ever came after owes a debt to this one. And it's fascinating. There's so much meaning to it. And um, it's three hours long and silent, yet somehow still holds your attention. It is 
If you're a film fan, you have to see it. There's no way around it. See, I know we just gave AFI a tough time for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, and I know that Metropolis has affected every single sci-fi that has come afterwards. But in this case, I feel like Snow White and Seven Dwarfs is a great film. I feel like Metropolis virtually can be the greatest science fiction film of all time, depending on who you ask. It still holds up that well. Mm-hmm. So it's like not even just about influence alone. Like it just is brilliant. It's um, a titan. It is. Now that is an epic. Um, so unlike the previous category, um, I still do agree with AFI. I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is the best one of all time. And I'm not going to go with another pick because, again, like the mystery genre, I could go through like a trillion. I love science fiction. I could go through like so many, so many picks, but it's not worth it. 2001 A Space Odyssey is as prophetic as um, Fritz Lang's Metropolis is for its time, uh, but for our time. And I feel like it to this day, it is still one of the best shot films of all time. Um so one of the most abstract, unique experiences where everybody's got a different interpretation of it. It's everything sci-fi. It's the the fear that Earth is being overpopulated and uh, it's going in a, in a bad direction, hence why they've all transferred over to space. Um, that humanity is its own worst enemy, which is seen in the earlier scenes uh, back in the, in the BC era. Um, the frigidness of sci-fi, the technology, the the spectacle, but also the fear of it. It's everything sci-fi and just done so sing like in such a singular fashion. So I can't disagree with AFI here. I'm gonna go with that. And um quite possibly we might all be doing the same or coming close to the next category, which is uh, probably all of our least favorite of this batch, the sports category. And as somebody who is a massive massive NBA fan uh, or basketball fan in general. I also co-host That's a Rap podcast, which is a Raptors podcast we've done so for about four years now. I hate the sports genre. I think it's so formulaic, and I don't know if both of you agree. Um, AFI selected Raging Bull as the number one sports film of all time. That's not a bad pick. Yeah, let's, let's see how this goes. So... Shall we get through this one? It's our second last one, so we're almost there. Uh, James, I don't think you're into sports, right? I'm. I'm not really. No, I'm. Not, I'm not a fan of sports, uh, especially sports films. Like I, I can get down with some films. So I think I didn't have any trouble picking mine because I. I didn't want to do anything expected because I mean, for a longest time, it's like there are specific films that are always cited as a top, um, like. Honestly, and and even more so, like I know Raging Bull or Rocky are always at the top. I know Hoosiers, Hoosiers is thrown in sometimes, but I don't know if that one quite holds up all the time. And then you have stuff like The Wrestler in recent years. But I just I, I brought it up on another episode. I'm bringing it up again. I got to go with Spike Lee's He Got Game. Oh, actually, nice choice. Yeah. Uh, one, because it's one of the rare sports films that's completely devoid of all the cliches of sports films. And it's also one of the rare instances where they pick an actual professional athlete who is actually a good actor because Ray Allen's performance is just impeccable. Actually, I think that's a, that's a great pick. And I would argue for sure. Top 10 of the genre. And it's not Uh, talked about enough. I don't think as far as sports films are concerned. No, it isn't. But I feel like a lot of things, Spike Lee, which were underrated. So not 
not do the right thing or not Malcolm X, but like the ones that people don't talk about enough, I feel like they're finally being discussed because people are recognizing, hey, he doesn't just make good films. He's a damn good filmmaker overall. So, you know, stuff like Bamboozled, uh, this, he got game, even his debut, they're getting some new, some new respect. So you never know. Maybe it'll be considered amongst the upper echelon of sports films. Rachel, what about you? Uh, well, I went with one that's probably never going to appear on any big list because not enough people know it, but they really should, and that is The Rocket, which is the story of Maurice Richard, one of the best hockey players of all time. And he wasn't just a great hockey player, he was a huge cultural symbol in Quebec and is in fact a huge part of their 20th century history. And so they don't just go into his uh, hockey skills, they really go into his political impact, which I think even he himself didn't really unfold. It was just he was in the right place at the right time, and his skills and his persona just set off this enormous change. And it's a really wild film to watch. I have not heard that name. Well, like The Rocket, but also Maurice Richard in a very long time. But like if you grew up in Canada, you would have heard it everywhere when you were young. So that takes me back, and I think that's, uh, I think that's a great pick as well. Um, for me, uh, sorry, sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm sticking with Raging Bull. I'm sorry. I'm not into sports <laughs> films. Are you a mole from sport- AFI? What's that? Are you a mole from the AFI? <laughs> oh god, she's on to us. Don't don't tell them that that the Godfather's gonna top the next top one hundred list again. Ah uh, anyway, um <laughs> back to our back to our program. Uh I'm going with Raging Bull because again, like I said, I'm not really into the genre all that much like some of my favorites include stuff like Moneyball which is like only 11 years old for instance um and I'm looking at a lot of these I like Rocky but I don't love it um Hoosiers I like but I don't love Bill Durham I like but I don't love Caddyshack is like a good comedy but is that really a sports film like aren't we grasping at straws I don't know so like Happy Gilmore yeah otherwise i would have said something else like the wrestler but like if i'm gonna be going with stuff where it's like more about the person within the industry then why wouldn't i go with what's my favorite film of the 80s and one of my favorite american films ever raging bull and i love how in the 80s which was very indicative of the most let's say cookie cutter sports films that all followed the same types of tropes this was not only an antithesis to 80 cinema in general but especially to the sports genre, because it was made by Scorsese, who Martin Scorsese also hates sports films. And he didn't want to make this thing, but instead he wanted to make a film that would have been quite possibly his last because he was dealing with addiction issues. And instead what we got is, uh, in my opinion, his magnum opus and just a brilliant, brilliant display of um, the... uh, the highs and lows within the sports industry if you're a giant who's very self-destructive. And you know what that resulted in? The best edited film ever by one Thelma Schoonmacher who was piecing together what felt like a gangster film, uh, uh, an at-home domestic drama, and everything in between, but also a sports film. And it's just brilliant. So I'm going to have to agree with AFI there. I don't know if we will agree with AFI on this last category. Not that they have a bad pick, but we're going into Rachel's favorite, the Western category. <laughs> so um, what AFI selected here is very typical, but it is a great film, but very typical. It's John Wayne's The Searchers. Well, technically John Ford's The Searchers starring John Wayne, but everybody knows it's John Wayne. Um, 
And are we going to agree with this? James, what is your favorite Western of all time? All right, so this one's going to be no surprise because, you know, through the history of this pod, I don't talk about him enough. I got to go with Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi. Yes. Just primarily because I think the one thing people don't give credit enough is the fact that despite its place in history as being the, like one of the greatest, like if not the greatest example of like no budget filmmaking, as a neo western, this thing is amazing, especially because it's in a almost a it's a, in a brand new setting. I mean, a western, like you know, I think he kind of came up with exploitation, even though it hasn't it didn't really become a thing outside of the stuff that he's done. And just like, you know, the fact that, you know, it has a hallmark of a Western where it's like, you know, it takes place all in the daytime and you can just feel the heat and just the action and the violence. It's just, I don't know. It's like he took everything that came before him and kind of outshined them with just pocket change. And I don't think he's really done anything that's actually been able to match just how fresh that was for the time, especially like in the early 90s. I mean... You know, what What else were Westerns in the early days? I think what you had, like, I think, didn't Clint Eastwood come out with something that same year? Because this was 92. What did he come out with that Unforgiven. year? Unforgiven. Ah, that, yes, you brought it up before. I think that came out the same year. But that was kind of like, I remember you said that was kind of like, you know, more of a tail end era thing for Clint Eastwood. But this is something just completely fresh and just in a setting no one would see. And it's also filled with unknown actors and yeah, I don't know. It's just I, I think it should get more credit in the Western genre because it does everything right as far as Westerns are concerned. I think that's a very James pick for sure, and I think it's a very solid one as well. Uh, Rachel, I know this is your least favorite genre, and I apologize that we're ending on it, but do you have a selection for the best Western or what your favorite Western is? Yes, so um, I've alluded to it before, but it was The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, because I think it was kind of the end of the conventional Hollywood Western, and it used so much symbolism, so many of the great stars, that kind of thing, and then it took The Legend of the Old West and kind of flipped it on its head, and it's really neat to see. That actually is a really good pick, and I know we love to, you know rag on John Wayne a lot on this pod, frankly, because he's a terrible person, but he still has some undeniable classics, like, again, The Searchers, and this one as well, where I feel like um, it, it really is a, a brilliant film through and through, and even if you're not a Western fan, to Rachel's point, I feel like it kind of transcends that a lot, and it's worth a shot, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, and this is why I didn't bring up What's About a Time in America earlier, um... For me, I love, unlike Rachel, I love Westerns. I could pick 50 off the top of my head if, if I wanted to. Also, between Wayne and Eastwood, Eastwood any day. Don't ever ask me that again. Uh, so um, what I'm going to do here is basically say that I think The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly by Sergio Leone is a film that I like more overall. Maybe because it shaped my taste in cinema even more so. But when it comes to the idea of the Western... Once Upon a Time in the West has to be, in my opinion, the de facto Western of Westerns. I feel like what it says about the end of an era and just how beautiful it is and just how emotional and it just perfects the genre and the time period presented on film just so exquisitely. And you have uh, Sergio Leone 
at possibly his directorial best uh, with a screenplay by Dario Argento and Bernardo Bertolucci, which are like names. Uh, was it somebody else there? I just have to look this up quickly. Sorry. Uh, once. Oh, it's also Sergio Leone. Okay, just just ignore this. Sorry about that. So you have really a, a trio of Italian storytelling masters. One art house, one obsessed with the giallo um, horror genre, and one that was obsessed with the West. And they all come together in this revisionist love letter to the end of an era, uh, cinematically and you know narratively and. It's like the Western of all Westerns. I adore Once Upon a Time in the West. So that is all of our, those are all of our selections. Uh, how do we think it went? We got to the end. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> and it's only been 50 minutes. So we're going to, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, this is a bit of a longer episode for, for all of us. Um, and we're not going to do any weekly recommendations because guess what? We've just done over 30. Uh, but what we will do is invite you to listen to more of our episodes. That's right. So we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. And for Cinematic Smorgasbord this month, our collective is Private Property by Leslie Stevens. And then our individual picks are La Jean, Blue Ruin, and Harold and Maude. So now we're at like close to 40 picks including some of the extras that we've tossed in there so that is more than enough cinema for all of you to discover happy 100 episodes to us at the k-cut and uh, i just wanted to quickly say i'm so happy that i started the pod with with the two of you i didn't ex like i expected it to go well or at least be a lot of fun but i didn't expect quite the the fluidity that we have when it comes to like what we discuss and everything. So it's been a real pleasure doing 100 episodes with the both of you. Thank you so much. And here's to the next 100. Uh, I find it kind of wild. We actually made it to 100. It's like more than that. Really? It's not easy. It's not. And that's another thing. Like we go through thick and thin, uh, no matter which, cause we're all three of us are actually extremely busy at all times. Um, to try and make this work and the fact that we do whether it's watching films that are projects or eating really disgusting foods that we assign one another we've done quite a lot on this pod and if you want to check out more we've got over 100 other episodes to check out and we've got many more coming where this came from so thank you all for listening and that was the k-cut for the 100th time we are now going into the l-cut <laughs>